We can turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, as we continue our studies in this prophet, in the minor prophets, we're going to look at verses 4 through 11a. 11b should go with chapter 7, uh, but I will read all of chapter 6 to set the context for us. There's going to be a, be a lot of thematic overlap with what we saw this morning. Uh, I'll try to draw out some nuance or difference, but uh, as faithful as a cloud is the title. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men they transgress the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As, ba as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry, there is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, harvest is appointed for you. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we know that worship is a blessed and glorious thing, and yet so often we neglect it, so often we do not do it aright, so often uh, we do not honor you like we should when it comes to our worship, and we know that that has effects in other parts of our lives, that it affects other uh, things in which we engage in. We ask and pray that we would be a people that loves to worship, that loves to gather, for you created us to honor and glorify you. Not that you needed anything, not that you needed anything from us, but we who are the creatures, we who are the, re, uh, the redeemed, ought to glorify you, the one who is God, the one who is our redeemer, the one who deserves glory and praise and honor. And so we pray that we would know our place in this world, that we would know what we are, but also know what you've done for us. And may that cause us to praise your name all the more. Please forgive us for times where we are fair weather. Please forgive us where we uh, times where we uh, speak, but we do not do. We know that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ for all of our sins, for which we thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for the knowledge that you give to your people in that new covenant. And we ask and pray that you'd comfort us today. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in the things of you. Help us to be faithful in worship. Help us to be faithful uh, as Christians. Help us to be faithful as spouses and parents and workers. Help us to be faithful and dependable in whatever you call us to do. So we pray that you'd help us in this. Help us to be rebuked if we need that rebuke. Help us to be uh, encouraged if we need that encouragement. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them and work in them. Show them their idolatry and show them their need for Christ Jesus. And we pray that you give us illumination from on high to understand what your word says. For these are difficult passages, yet you do provide, you do supply what we need. So enlighten our minds and hearts, we pray. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to Christian worship, it is important that we base those things on the word of God, especially as it comes to our worship. As we gather as the saints, as we come to worship God on the Lord's day, it must be based on what God has said. That's why we teach what's called the regulative principle of worship. Just because something isn't forbidden in Scripture, it doesn't mean it is appropriate for the gathered body. It doesn't mean it's appropriate for corporate worship. That's why when we gather, it's based upon the Word of God. We sing the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word, and we see the Word in the sacraments. So it must be explicit in Scripture or necessarily contained in 
That's the Reformed view. But there is an evangelical view, which most in evangelicalism probably don't know they have this view, but it's called the normative principle of worship. Just because it isn't forbidden, it is perfectly appropriate. And the emphasis seems to be more on motivation rather than the knowledge of God. Worship of God in many churches includes dancing in the aisle, shredding guitars for Jesus, or emphasizing the extras in church or outside of church like puppets, ponies, and programs rather than what God has commanded. And what's interesting, there is nothing new under the sun. Certainly we can have our problems. Certainly even though we believe we have right worship, sometimes our demeanor isn't always there. But one thing we do very clearly see in Hosea's time is the people want to worship Yahweh their way. They want to worship Yahweh alongside Baal. They want to worship Yahweh alongside other gods. They want to worship Yahweh in the ways that they wanted to worship him rather than honoring and being loyal to what he says in his word. The Israelites worshiped like nations. The Israelites worshiped like the nations around them rather than being different and worshiping God according to what he said in the book of Deuteronomy. And so here come the prophets. Here come the prophets to deal with Israel's wretched worship. And so that's what the prophet Hosea does. He comes on the scene in around the 8th century, so 700s BC. He was the prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember, this is the time of the divided kingdom. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So he primarily prophesied to the northern kingdom with some application to Judah as well, which we will see. And the main message of the book of Hosea is the picture that we see of his marriage, the picture of Israel's spiritual adultery. Yahweh tells the prophet Hosea, go marry a wife of harlotry, go marry one who has children of harlotry. And she then engages in adultery against Hosea. And that is a picture of what Israel is doing as a nation. That is a picture of Israel's wicked worship, Israel's idolatry, Israel's wanting to worship Yahweh but in their way, wanting to worship Yahweh, not exclusively, but alongside all of these other gods rather than Yahweh himself and in his ways. And so Hosea comes, he challenges them, and he also, we also see the message of that in that marriage. What a vivid picture of Israel's wretchedness and Israel's spiritual adultery. And we've come to a new section beginning at chapter 6, verse 4. We come to the section on a forgetful people. Chapter 4 through 6 dealt with waiting for repentance, waiting for a people that would turn to the true and living God. And what we see throughout the book in all the sections uh, are three uh, as, as a cycle. We see a cycle of exposing their sin, a cycle of warning uh, uh, impend about impending judgment, and then also the promise of restoration. So a lot of terrible things, a lot of warning, a lot of indicting, a lot of uh, rebuking, but also a lot of restoring as well. And so at the end of the last section, we have this encouraging, this promise uh, of restoration. There will be a time when the people will repent. There will be a time when people turn to the true and living God. There will be a time when the people are revived. And that's going to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is like the only place in the Old Testament that prophesies on the third day. The only place in the Old Testament, certainly we see with Jonah the third day being in the belly of the beast, but it's the only prophecy where he prophesies about the third day and the revival that comes through Christ who is raised on that third day. But back to Israel's time. If there is this call to repentance, if there is this, uh, uh, this, this call to return, will the people actually do it? Well, they might say they do it, but they're a fair weather friend. They might say they're going to do it, but in reality, they don't do that at all. And that's what we have here when we come to verse four, this fair, forgetful, fair weather people. And the problem is very clear in these verses, their unfaithfulness to the covenant unfaithfulness to what Yahweh had said to them in the book of Deuteronomy. It is a perpetual, consistent unfaithfulness to Yahweh's covenant, despite all the good things Yahweh has done for them, and despite all the warnings Yahweh has provided as well. And one way this manifests, one key indicator, is with respect to their worship. That was throughout the Old Testament. If a king did what was right, it was based on worship. If a king did what was wrong, it was based on worship. And it shows how unfaithful they have been. So in verses 4 through 11 of Hosea 6, 
Yahweh exposes Israel's unfaithfulness in worship. So faithfulness is key or unfaithfulness, key word tonight. And we'll look at this under two headings. First of all, we'll see how unfaithful Israel is, verses 4 through 6. Then secondly, we'll see how treacherous Israel's leaders are uh, in verses 7 through 11. So that was kind of a mouthful. How unfaithful Israel is, verses 4 through 6. How unfaithful Israel is. And then we'll see how treacherous Israel's leaders are in verses 7 through 11. So treacherous and unfaithful. Let's first look at how unfaithful Israel is, verses 4 through 6. And in verse 4, we see their unfaithfulness. Now, again, the context, it's on the heels of that promise. It's based upon God saying and promising this time, this time when the people would pursue true knowledge. They pursue Yahweh according to his ways. And this future promise exposes the lack of it in the present. And so what is Yahweh to do with a perpetually unfaithful people? What is Yahweh to do with a people that never seem to listen to what he has to say? And certainly we see the question, verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? There's kind of an encouraging inclusio with chapter 11, probably why those, uh, that's probably why the section is the way it is, or some uh, theologians suggest that. But in chapter 11, 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? But before we get to that point, we have to deal with what Yahweh is going to do to them. What shall I do to you, O Ephraim? Remember, Ephraim is the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's interchanged for the northern kingdom, Israel. But Judah has problems as well. Judah was the southern kingdom. Judah had the Davidic line. Judah was was where Jerusalem was. It was the place of worship. Yet they still had their problems as well. Israel and Judah, Israel as a whole, northern and southern kingdoms have been unfaithful to Yahweh and have not obeyed him, but have allowed pagan worship to enter into the house of God. And when Yahweh asks these questions, it's not as though he doesn't know what to do. What these questions signify is how long suffering Yahweh has been with them. They have repeatedly violated the covenant, yet Yahweh has been very gracious to them. Yahweh so often reminds them, Yahweh so often um, even rebukes them and says, return and come back. He is very patient with them. Even after they say in Exodus 24, we will do whatever you say. What happens in Exodus 32? They're bowing before a calf. Israel has always been a stiff necked people throughout their centuries, throughout their history. And so what is Yahweh going to do with them? And we see the reason for the judgment he's going to bring. Verse 4, for your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. And like the dew, uh, early dew, it goes away. What does fair weather mean? It's one who is a friend when things are easy, but then just says bye-bye when things are bad. It's one who's not going to be in it for the long haul. And that's what Israel is like here. They speak with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. They say we'll do something, but in reality, they do not do that very thing. They have outward affirmation, but in reality, their inward heart is exposed by their lack of doing what Yahweh asks of him. This language of faithfulness is the covenant word chesed that we see throughout the Old Testament. It's used of Yahweh and his love for his people, his covenant loving kindness, his loyalty to his people. And here it's used uh, in a negative way. Your faithfulness is like the morning dew. Loyalty to Yahweh matters more than one's own heart motivation. It's expressed in obedience rather than sacrifice. And a very clear example of one who uh, preferred sacrifice rather than obedience was King Saul. Remember, God said, you need to kill all the Amalekites, slaughter all of them, kill King Agag, get rid of them. What does Saul do? Well, he does kill to some degree, but then he keeps the bulls and the goats and the animals and King Agag. And he said, oh, and Samuel comes and asks, why do I hear lowing in the background? Well, then he says, well, it's because I wanted to sacrifice these things to Yahweh. 
But then that's when Samuel says, God desires obedience and not sacrifice. That is what God wishes. Now, sacrifices are good. Yahweh has given them uh, uh, as a good thing, how they approach unto Yahweh by way of these sacrifices. But they must be done in the right manner with the right demeanor. And it is a foundation for right living. And there was none of that going on in Israel's time. There was none of that happening there. And so their faithfulness is very much like a morning cloud, like the early dew that goes away. This is a Mediterranean image. In the summer, the way in which um, Yahweh in his providence and how he governs the seasons, uh, the way in which he kept vegetation uh, lush was by way of the morning dew and the morning cloud. But in the afternoon, in the summer, it would just vanish away. That's why the people are as faithful as a cloud. They're really not faithful at all. The people just kind of disappear. They say one thing and then they're gone the next. They're as faithful for your faithfulness, your loyalty, which there isn't any at all, is like a morning cloud and like the early dew. It goes away. All talk, no walk. All sizzle, no steak. We won't worship Baal again. We pinky uh, pinky swear promise. But what happens? They just go ahead and worship the Baals. I mean, again, Exodus 24, we won't do that. And then Exodus 32, or in Joshua's day, Joshua, who actually was an Ephraimite, remember the people say, yeah, we'll, we'll do it, Joshua. We're witnesses against ourselves. And Joshua kept saying, you can't do it. But they're like, no, we got it. It's fine. And then the book of Judges comes along. And what happens? Well, they, they worship idols rather than the one true and living God. That is what Israel is like. Faithfulness like a morning cloud and like the early dew, it goes away. That is how unfaithful Israel is. But we do see Yahweh's faithful word in verses 5 and 6. And it's a faithful word of judgment. Just as Yahweh said he'll bring blessing, Yahweh also says he's going to bring judgment. And especially according to the terms of the old covenant, do what is right, receive good things. You do what is wicked, you'll receive bad things. Now, we know Israel didn't do anything right, uh, so they received bad things. But yet Yahweh still warns them. He sends prophets. He says ones who speak, uh, ones who speak on his behalf. Therefore, I've hewn them. I have carved them. I have cut them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. I have spoken to them, I've rebuked them, I've warned them, and I've said that if you do not do what I say, judgment is going to come upon you. And that's exactly what happens. Yahweh affirms his word, his main weapon is his word, but he affirms his word by way of Assyria and by way of Babylon. And their judgments, that is the judgments they deserve, will be, ex- will be exposed and shine like a light. Your judgments are like light that goes forth. And what's interesting is in 2 Kings 17 verses 13 and 14, where we see the northern kingdom finally taken in 722 Uh, BC 17 verses 13 and 14 gives us a summary of what Yahweh did. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear but stiff, uh, stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Summary statement concerning what Yahweh did Here are the prophets, they're warning, turn from your ways, but they do not. And so what does Yahweh do? Yahweh judges them. So he's hewn them by the prophets, men who speak on behalf of God, not just foretelling, not just future telling, but forth telling, mainly talking about what Yahweh wants them to hear. And he has slain them by the words of his mouth. There's an interesting connection there, isn't there, that Yahweh speaks by way of the prophets. And your judgments are like a light that goes Forth, So his word is faithful. He will bring this about. And then we see the reason why in verse six. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt 
offerings. Now again, sacrifices and burnt offerings are not wrong in and of themselves. But it was the assumption of the people that it was more about these outer things, but those other things did not matter so much. It didn't matter whether we were aligned with Yahweh exclusively and did what he said. We just want to get what we want. We just want to get as much as we can by doing little as we can from the God that we supposedly are connected to. So they just felt like they did their part. Well, I came in the morning. I came in the evening. I did my job. I did my thing. And... That's all that I needed. Again, sacrifices are not bad. It was how the Old Testament people approached unto Yahweh, but they made them their, their, uh, their, their assurance. And so Burroughs says they bolstered up themselves with these, objecting against the prophet when he pressed them to mercy and to the knowledge of God. Why are not we abundant in serving God? Burnt offerings are not neglected by us, and why should not we be accepted? They thought that they did their part, but they could go murder and steal and pillage and destroy and everything's fine. They thought that they could just come on Sunday and everything would be great and they'd sacrifice and they could go fornicate throughout the week. Everything's great. That's what they thought. Again, they had this mercenary spirit, didn't they? They had this, what can I get from God? A lot of people have that sort of view. People who don't know the true and living God. It's what can Yahweh do for me? Remember, You were created by God and God does not have to do anything for you because you have been created by the creator. It's a gift. It's a kindness that when he made Adam, he didn't just say worship me, although he did. But he said to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy this earth that I have given to you. Spread my glory to the ends of the earth. Be my vice regent on this earth. God was good to Adam in that way, and it makes what Adam does all the more egregious, doesn't it? It makes what you and I do all the more heinous when Yahweh is so good to this world, and yet we sinned against him. And thanks be to God, there is Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins, because without him, we deserve everlasting punishment, don't we? Everlasting damnation for trampling on the goodness of God. And then we see the goodness of God all the more in the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save wretched people like us because we could not worship him. And yet he was perfect in absolutely every way. Yahweh requires mercy and the knowledge of him. And what's interesting is the word for mercy there is the word hesed again. The people have been unfaithful. Your faithfulness is like a cloud. Now what does he ask of the people to be faithful? To love Yahweh, do what he says, and that manifests in worship, but also manifests in the life in which they live and how they treat other people, which comes up when we get to verses 7 through 11. But he requires covenant faithfulness. What has Yahweh said? Requires covenant loyalty. What has Yahweh spoken? And requires the knowledge of him and that true knowledge of him. And again, how does that come about, dear brethren? It comes by way of the new covenant, the knowledge that is given to the people of God. And we saw in Hosea 4 and 5, uh, and even in 6 as well, but Hosea 4 and 5, we see how he chides the people, how he chastises the people uh, for their ignorance. The people do not have knowledge of him. They have been rejected uh, because they do not know him. They're destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you people have rejected Yahweh and who he is. And notice how knowledge and practical living, how we live in this world, go hand in hand. You know, we hear something, we know something, we either accept or reject that very thing. And if we accept to be true, we hopefully do uh, what is good and right. Yahweh said we ought to worship him. Hopefully we do that thing. Yahweh is glorious and good. Hopefully as redeemed saints and change have changed hearts in him, we move towards that which is right and good and worship him as that right and true God. But knowledge and practice go hand in hand and worship and practice go hand in hand as well, which we will see in verses 7 through 11. But before we get there, there is some New Testament application to verse 6. There are three passages, two explicit quotes and one allusion. The first place is Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew 9 and Matthew 12, you can turn with me to Matthew 9. In Matthew 9 and Matthew 12, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Israel never learns, do they? (laughs) 
and the Pharisees especially never learned. They took their man-made laws and made them God's law. And one of their man-made laws was not to show mercy and kindness to the riffraff. And so what happens when Jesus saves a tax collector who is considered the scum, you know, of society because they're traitors, you know, they're, they're in bed with the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire. They're, they're, they're close to them. They hated them. And so what happens? Matthew is saved. Matthew is chained. And so Matthew invites all his tax collector friends and sinners, and they sit down with Jesus and his disciples. In verse 11 of Matthew 9, the Pharisees have a meltdown. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We need to know our need. We need to just know that we are sinners. And that's the first thing we prayed. And that's why we preach the law. Here's the law. Here's what it says. Honor God, honor man. You can't do that. But there is one who does believe upon him. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. He came to save those who are sick. And the Pharisees thought that they were well. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, covenant love, covenant faithfulness, honoring God. And not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of the beautiful things about that new covenant is we have mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. He came to show mercy. He came to show kindness. He came to offer up himself as that sacrifice for his people, which the Pharisees would never do. And then we see in Matthew chapter 12, he heals, or the, the disciples have a little snack on the Lord's, on, I guess on the Sabbath at that time. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw it again, they got their bee in a bonnet. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Again, their own man-made laws. Remember the Pharisees taught it was salvation by what they said. Salvation by works. Where Jesus comes and said it's salvation by grace. Mercy and forgiveness. And so we see in verse 7 or verse 6, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. They would not have condemned those who did nothing wrong. It was based upon their laws and not what God had said. Again, there is some connection between what Israel is doing in Hosea's time and what the Pharisees are doing here. might look different, but it still is man's laws versus God's law. What we want, what we think versus what God has said. But Jesus is showing that the beautiful thing about the new covenant is that there is mercy and forgiveness. It's based upon salvation and forgiveness and and, and, and redemption uh, for for a wretched people. And that's the beautiful thing about the new covenant. Jesus uh, uh, gives us grace. Jesus gives us uh, what we need. It's what Jesus has done. We don't earn anything, but Jesus has given it to us. And therefore, as the people of God who've been redeemed in him, we ought to honor him according to his ways, right? As those who've been saved, not for salvation, but those who have been saved, that we might do what Yahweh says. Because if we use man-made laws, we can unduly burden people. We can unduly weigh them down rather than recognizing here's what Yahweh uh, has said. And certainly there is another place where Hosea 6 is alluded to, and that's Mark 12, 33. Comes uh, on the lips of a scribe. Remember, this is the section where he's being tested by Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. What is the greatest commandment? It is to love the Lord your God. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is all the law and the prophets. Those are the first four, are the first four commandments. Love God. The latter six commandments. Love your neighbor. And then the scribe responds, you've spoken well, for there is one God. There is no other but he. To love him with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the uh, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The, the moral law of the Ten Commandments transcends covenant. It abides throughout all the centuries. The ceremonial laws, the burnt offerings, were for a specific time. But they were still good for that specific time, but they are no longer needed because Jesus Christ has come. And the whole point really on Mark 12 is that you cannot keep it on your own. 
to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul, with all your strength. You cannot do that. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. That's when we need Christ who did, who loved God with all his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. And so that is the greatest commandment. And he does say, Jesus, about this one, you are not far from the kingdom. But after that, no one dared to question him. But as we turn back to Hosea chapter 6, I think one thing we can take away from this is how important faithfulness is. Faithfulness, dependableness, especially as the redeemed, as saved in Christ, There is this tendency, even for all of us, to want to do what we want rather than what Yahweh wants. It's all in us. I have my thoughts and my things, but we must take that back to the word of God and make sure when it comes to worship and when it comes to the life in which we live, we do so according to what he has said. That's why faithful churches are most important. That's why faithful people in faithful churches are most important. We must be faithful to what God has called us to do, dependable loyal, uh, according to what he has said. And when we come to a church, the most important thing to ask is not what gift do I have, but how can I be faithful? How can I be faithful in this place? How can I be faithful to my God? How can I be faithful to my spouse? If the Lord gives you a spouse, how can I be faithful to my family? How can I be faithful to my church? That is what God has called us to do according to what he has said. And when it comes to how we live, the word of God is very clear. It is the Ten Commandments, brethren. That is how we live. That is what God has called us to do. That is where our faithfulness lies. If God has given you a spouse, you need to be faithful to them according to what he has said in his word. Not according to what the world thinks, but according to what the Bible says. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to raising children, the Bible also indicates what that should look like in its general principles, in its general uh, focus. Certainly there is nuances and nitty-gritty and how to... Uh, apply all those things, but there is applicate, or there is the principles that God has given. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We see that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline drives it far from him. There are things that are hard about parenting, but there are things that are required and needed to be faithful in that. And then also, faithful when it comes to the church of Christ. Faithful when it comes to the means of grace. We harped on this last week. We talked about this this morning, but it needs to be said again, because that is one area we can be fair weather in this area. That we, it's easy for us to, uh, to wane in our faithfulness to the means of grace. And I say that not to harp, but because it is a place where we grow. It is as, uh, there's one blessed book by J. Ryan Davidson called Green Pastures. It's a primer on the means of grace. We get to come and be fed and nourished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and worship according to the way that he has said in his word. Honor him as the corporate body in the way that he has determined and glorify him, present our bodies as living sacrifices according to what he has said in his word. So faithfulness, that is what we look for. That is what we hope for. If that is what you are doing, wonderful. That is a blessed thing. I might never know what you've done around the world. If you've done wonderful things, that's fantastic. But if you're just faithful, you're faithful morning and evening, you're faithful to your job, you're faithful with your family and faithful with your children, and that, wonderful. That, that is your reasonable service in this world. Nope. People might not know all that or what you do, but that's fine. Do we need to be known by everybody? Do we need to be seen by everybody? Does everybody need to know what we're doing all the time? Hopefully not. Hopefully we're just happy to do that before God most high. And so people must be faithful. And one thing, because of what is said in verses 7 through 11, ministers must be faithful. Ministers must be faithful in what God has called them, us, me, to do. My job, dear brethren, is to preach the word. That is primarily it, isn't it? And as I shepherd the brethren, how do I shepherd you? It is in the word of God. I'm not your life coach. I'm not your, uh, I'm not your, you know, uh, what's it? One thing people talk about a lot is they want, you know, other um, social things. I'm not your social planner. That's, that's not my job. Other people, other people, you want to plan a social thing in our church. That is fantastic. You talk about it. Great. Do it. But that, that is not my job. 
Acts chapter 6 is very clear. Why did they raise up deacons? So that the pastors, the apostles, could focus on preaching and prayer. That is what a task, uh, pastor's task is, to shepherd the brethren. How does he do that? By preaching and sometimes exhorting privately. I'm not opposed to those very things, but that is a pastor's task. So often in other churches, it's, is he good with music? Is he good with this? Is he good with that? Is he administ- Hopefully he's at least a little bit administrative. Hopefully I've tried to do that very thing. But the main thing is to, is to preach the word of God. That is his task. And that is it. Don't try to take me away from that. Don't try to draw me away from that very thing. But that is what God is. I'm not a visionary, brethren. I want you to know that too. There's these pastors of vision, right? Well, I don't even know what that means. I'm not a visionary. I'm just going to do what God has called me to do. And when I die... Great. You can hire someone else who hopefully does what he's supposed to do. If we're still around by then, hopefully we're still around uh, many years. That's my, okay, there's my vision. We're still here many years down the road. We planted to the ends of the earth. That's great. We got, I love to have a library and whatever, but hey, hopefully that is uh, one thing. But faithfulness is absolutely key because our God has been faithful to us. And so let us be faithful in worship unlike unfaithful Israel. And that does require leaders who are faithful as well. And so we'll transition to verses 7 through 11, how treacherous Israel's leaders are. Verses 7 through 11. Point one was a lot longer uh, in my notes. So if you're wondering, oh, it's only... It's five to seven. He's only turning to point two now. You shouldn't worry about that based on what we talked about this morning. You should all be thrilled. Why aren't you going longer, Pastor Mike? But uh, versus, I'm just, just telling you where we're going. So verses seven through 11a. Notice we see Israel's violation. But like Adam is how it should be translated. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. We see an analogy of Israel's violation of the covenant and just how terrible it is. Now, there is a city called Adam, and some theologians have said, or some commentators have said, maybe something happened there, but I don't think that's what's in view. I think it is the first covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. Just because the word covenant was not there doesn't mean the concept is not present. And thankfully, later revelation, Hosea 6, reveals something about earlier revelation, Genesis chapter 2, that it really was a covenant, wasn't it? God entered into a covenant with Adam, that covenant of works wherein eternal life was held out where eternal life was given or held out to Adam that if he did not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was that tree of life. And what happens? Adam violates it and brings sin and misery into the world. Now, what Israel did is not as terrible, but sort of. Isn't that the the connection he is making? Just as heinous as Adam was, so in many ways Israel has been. God was good to Adam, and now God has been good to Israel. He's given them many things, and yet what do they do? They spit in his face, and they spit in his face by way of wicked worship, by not doing what he says. Here's the good things Yahweh has done. He redeems them. He saves them. He gives them a land. He helps them fight against the Canaanites in the land. He gives them blessings. Solomon's day, they've spread to the ends of the earth. Well, not quite, but they've had this huge empire. And yet it divides, divided because of their treachery. They transgressed the covenant. It was a covenant that could be broken. The old covenant with Israel is a covenant of works, not for salvation, but concerning life in the land. And they trample on God's good gifts. There they dealt treacherously with me. That's how heinous it is. Then he goes on to give some specific violations and he focuses in on the priests in verses 11, verses 8 through 11. Now, there is probably some overlap and connection with verse 7 as well, domestic violations that flow out of wicked worship. Notice we see in verse 8, a city filled with bloodshed. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. Don't know why Gilead is mentioned there. It's probably Ramoth Gilead in the, from the Eastern inheritance. Maybe there was a recent situation, but perhaps they were just notorious for their bloodshed. And the way to translate defiled with blood is footprints of blood. It's just so terrible. It's so bad that as you're walking through the streets, you got blood on your shoes and you're making footprints as you walk through the city. That's how wicked and terrible 
and how violent Gilead has been. But notice how it goes on to compare that violence and robbers with the priests in verse 9. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. The religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to be holy and set apart, the ones who were supposed to be the examples, the ones who were supposed to teach the people concerning the things of God, they are engaging in bloodshed like a band of robbers. They're more concerned with political influence and power rather than religious fidelity to Yahweh. They're more concerned with money and fame, removing their opponents rather than doing what Yahweh has said in his word. No wonder the people are not doing things right. It's the people's fault, but there also is a lot of responsibility on the leaders as well. He scolds them in Hosea 4. And certainly if you bring this to a modern application, it's a serious warning for all those in office. Just because you get there doesn't mean you can't fall. God, officers, pastors still struggle with sins. We're talking about scandalous, disqualifying sins. That can happen. It's a travesty. It's a tragedy that it does happen. Pray for me, brethren. Pray that that doesn't happen to me. But it very well could happen to me. But we pray that it would not. Officers can be susceptible to temptation. First Corinthians 10, Galatians chapter 6. Yeah, that's a general uh, reference, but it applies to ministers uh, as well. But these priests, they murder. They're like a band of robbers. They lie in wait. It's premeditated. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Why Shechem? I don't necessarily know, but it's on the way to Shechem. There were some blessed things about Shechem. I mean, that's where Yahweh appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12. When he enters into the land, he appears to him at Shechem. When the covenant is renewed in Joshua 24, and remember, Joshua was an Ephraimite. So these are Joshua's descendants who are doing terrible and awful things. You know, that's where we see a covenant renewal. But again, that's where Israel says, yeah, we'll do what Yahweh says. And then there is that notorious history with that situation with Dina. In Genesis 34, with her being violated and then her brothers going and destroying and killing the men of Shechem. So Ephraim is filled with some good things, but now it's become a place of bloodshed. The priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. Now, again, lewdness is probably not the translation here. It's probably the idea that they carried out their plan. What this means is it wasn't just sort of temptation that overcame them. That happens, right? It was premeditated. Again, they lie in wait, they murder on the way, and they fulfill their plan. They planned it. They, they, they were wanting to kill this specific person or they, these people, and they fulfilled it. They engaged it. They planned it. They wasn't just uh, all of a sudden, there it is, and they're tempted. And No, they, they've been planning it. It shows how despicable they truly have become. And their despicableness has extended into Israel. I have seen, verse 10, a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. There's literal fornication. There is bloodshed. And there is wicked worship in the house of Israel. The priests have no gifts. The priests have no graces. The priests are not doing what they are supposed to do. But... Instead, defiling the household of God and the people follow them. I have seen a horrible thing. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Notice how worship affects other areas of life here. Wrong worship leads to wrong practice. Like right doctrine leads to right practice. Right worship leads to right practice as well. Some of the best things for the people of God who are struggling with sin. Yes, if you want to you know, kill sin in various ways. If you want to uh, uh, just watch out and be on, we need to do all those things. But some of the best things for the people of God is to come to the house of God. Struggle with sin, come to church. Having an issue, come to church. Come and be fed by the word of God. That is what the people of God need. Right worship, come worship God aright. Get that in order. And he is pleased to help his people. I think I've said this before, but the healthiest sheep are the ones who make use of the means of grace. I cannot say that enough. The healthiest sheep, as a pastor who's been a pastor for five years, are the ones who are the most faithful to the means of grace. Not saying they don't have problems, 
but they understand that important thing. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But Israel was not doing what Yahweh said. They were not making use of the means. Israel is defiled. There's harlotry, and Judah is going to receive judgment as well. So 11a, also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you. I think when I return, uh, uh, goes with verse 7, but a harvest is appointed for you. Not a good harvest. Talk about judgment. Sometimes harvest can refer to a good thing, but sometimes it can refer to the sickle. It can refer to Jesus in Revelation 14, the son of man who comes with the sickle and is ready to bring judgment. It's used in Isaiah 18, Jeremiah 51, and Joel 3 as judgment. And I think that is in view here as well. Judah, a harvest is appointed for you. A time of judgment is appointed for you as well. We hoped you would turn. We hoped because you have David's line there that things would be fine. But in reality, they have not. And so judgment is going to come. I think all this teaches us not just the importance of faithfulness, but just how important covenant worship is, isn't it? Brethren, worship is the most important thing that we do. God created us to worship. Man violates and goes against what God says. And so we need missions for what reason? so that we might worship God. That is why missions exist, because as one writer says, worship does not. When it comes to the church of God, when it comes to what her purpose is, it is to glorify God. When it comes to the sheep of God, it is to glorify God. That is what we are called to do. I think the COVID era, I hate saying that, but I think that era exposed a couple assumptions and hopefully helps correct us when it comes to what the word of God says. One assumption is evangelism is the most important thing. Brother, I'm all for evangelism. We want sinners to be saved, but evangelism is not the most important thing. Worship is. That's why we wanted to gather, dear brethren, because worship is the most important thing. Another assumption that goes with it is loving our neighbor. What does that mean to love our neighbor? What does that look like? Well, it is the, the commandments. But we also have to ask ourselves, who are our first neighbors? And it helps us think through where our responsibility ultimately lies. And again, the reality is the pastor's responsibility is for whom? It's his flock. It's his people. Just like a father's responsibility is primarily for his family, so too is a pastor's responsibility pri- primarily for his flock. And the most important thing that we can do as the people of God is come to worship. Brethren, in the first century, second century, third century, when the pagans were destroying and pillaging the Christians, not full on, uh, full on uh, empire wide uh, persecution necessarily. There were some of those. Most of them were just regional. But nonetheless, Christians gathered for worship and risked their lives to do that. I mean, you heard about the catacombs, right? How they they snuck into the tombs and they were fearful looking around who's going to get us. And then they enter in and there's a light there and they're all singing, pray. And they risked their lives to gather. They risked their lives to worship the one true and living God, because that is our highest privilege, brethren. And that is what we are going to be doing for ever and ever world without end. And thankfully, something blessed happens when we come and worship. God has said that he would speak to us. We talked about that this morning, but I think especially how is it that we grow, dear brethren? It is by his word. There's three passages I think highlight this very clearly. Acts 20, 32. We referred to that this morning. How do we grow? So wolves are going to come. They're going to be savage. They're not going to spare the flock, false teachers. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples. So be watchful. Then verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It builds you up. First Peter chapter two, verses one and two. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And then 2 Peter 1 verses 2 through 4 in the greeting. 
grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. When we come to worship, we come to praise his name and honor him. That is our service too, dear brethren. That is the highest thing that we get to do. We get to come and worship him. But as we come and worship him, he also speaks to us through his word. And he really nourishes us and strengthens us and changes us and causes us to die to sin day by day and grow into the image of Christ. That's why I sound like a broken record. That's why the men of old sound like broken records, because it's important to understand what is the main thing, dear brethren. And the main thing is to gather as the saints to worship God, honor and glorify him to help us and strengthen us as we live our lives as well. We are nourished and strengthened on Sunday as we go into the world the other six days of the week. And the Lord gives us that strength that we need to be built up, to be strengthened, to love our spouses, to love our children, to love one another. We need that first being fed by the word on the Lord's day as we get to come and worship him together and stir up one another to love and good works. It is important. Do not be fair weather with this. Prioritize these things. And brethren, If you have times where you're fair weather and you don't prioritize these things, please remember that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Find mercy, find forgiveness, press on in the faith, press on and honor and glorify him because Jesus has saved us for what reason? To worship him. And if you're an unbeliever here today, you do not worship God, but you worship things other than the one true and living God. But there is one who saves, one who lived, died, and rose again. If you believe on him, you shall be saved. And you shall be saved to worship the one true and living God. Well, let us pray. Our great God, thank you for your redemption that you have given to your people. And we are thankful that we are redeemed and you've given us so many good gifts out of that uh, uh, because of that redemption. Um, But we ask and pray, especially that we would be a people that worships your name, that we would sing holy, 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 that we would recognize that worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and dominion and power, that he is the one who reigns forever. And so we are thankful for his finished work. Thank you that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Thank you that he is the son of man. And even though we do not see him, we come to worship. We come to praise him. We come to glorify him. Thank you for reminding us of this need for so often we can be forgetful and neglectful in the things of you. So often we can major in the minor rather than recognizing the things that matter most. And we pray that you'd forgive us for that. And so we pray tonight that if we needed to be rebuked and need to be reminded of what is important, please remind us. If there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls by your spirit working with the word. And we do ask and pray that we would honor and glorify you in all that we do. So be with us now as we go into the world and we pray these things in the name of Christ.